0: Also from mudhousemedia.com. Join Patrick McEnroe as he has conversations with incredible guests on his tennis podcast, Holding Court. Share his love of tennis, the tournaments, events, and news with other professional athletes, artists, Hollywood stars, and CEOs. Exclusively on the Mudhouse Media Network and wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.
1: Welcome to Tanya's Table. My guest today is restaurateur Danny Meyer. Tanya. Yes. Hey, Danny. How are you?
2: Nice to hear your voice.
1: Nice to hear yours. Thanks for uh, taking the time to speak to me. I really appreciate it. Where are you today? Are you um, out of the city? I'm,
2: yeah, I've actually been away from the city for some period of time, mm-hmm. um, which is frustrating, very, very frustrating, but we can't get anything done in the city.
1: Right, right. I imagine. Wow. I mean, I can't only imagine what you've been going through in your businesses with this.
2: Um, well, maybe not that dissimilar from what you've been going well, through. Well,
1: I mean, you're responsible for so many more people. I think, you know, I was thinking about that last week about you know, my health and wellness, I'm like, I'm responsible for a lot of people and I'm not even responsible for that many compared to, you know, you, and that must, you know, that must be a lot to, uh, to, to have on your shoulders right now.
2: It's the hardest part. Yeah. It is. It's, um, if I think about the night where I've not been able to fall asleep, it's mm-hmm. almost all been connected to, uh, people challenges.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Retaining people, not being able to retain people, how are we taking care of people who we couldn't retain? yeah, oh yeah, you're right,
1: yeah. I was going to get into that later, but I'm so glad since we're on that, why do you think like our industry got so stuck, you know, didn't evolve like we're so behind in the the you know the people part of the business, the really like making sure there's systems in place so people have you know, mental health, um, you know, care, so people have savings, you know, things like that. Have you, any thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I mean,
2: I've spent a, a lot of time, you know, while we've not been able to operate restaurants, we have had a ton of time to contemplate uh, the industry and, mm-hmm. and how, to make, how to make the kind of changes that we're going to need if we want to move away from uh, so many people issues where we don't we don't do for our own people what we try to do for our paying guests Mm -hmm. take great take great care of them Mm -hmm. and certainly thought a lot about that you know last time you and I were together we were talking about um, challenges being a woman, mm-hmm. and now we now we're talking about challenges of being um, a, a person of color as well as being a woman, mm-hmm. and and you can talk about, and I, I promise you that that those are, you know, amongst many many other problems that our industry, I think, has perpetuated, and I think a lot of it has to do with. Um, the challenges that come with having very, very small, unpredictable margins, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and when that happens, and, and on top of that, and I think you and I have spoken about this, um, a compensation model that that just does not work in so many different ways,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: and when you combine those two things together, think think about it: if your margins as as a restaurant operator, are declining month by month by month.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, in the in the list of of the hierarchical things you're going to do to save your business, the, the first thing is you've got to pay your rent.
1: Right. And
2: that's not going away, or you're go- or you're going to be evicted. Right. And the next thing you have to do is pay for all of your food and and beverage supplies. And then you have to pay for all kinds of insurance.
0: Mm-hmm. And then you have
2: to pay payroll taxes. And at the end of the day, something gives. And what gives, unfortunately, is, um, I, I think, uh, needed and appropriate compensation for people who work in our business. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just a firm believer that the... the um, the tipping system, as we know it, has only helped to perpetuate that. And yeah,
1: yeah, um, yep. And I was getting,
2: oh, go ahead. It's frustrating. No, it's just it's it's very very frustrating.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that as well. So, since you've moved away from the tipping uh, system, what has been the most significant change that you've seen in your you know the the
2: culture of your restaurants? Well, I should let you know that today, by by coincidence, is a day that we are going to announce to our team and then publicly that, that when we do reopen, whenever that's safe to do,
0: mm-hmm.
2: we will be uh, shelving the hospitality-included model and returning to tipping. Really? And, and as crazy as that sounds, as somebody who has railed against the tipping system, Mm -hmm. we came to the conclusion that uh, tipping in and of itself is not the problem. Mm
0: -hmm. The bigger
2: problem is the inability, certainly in our state and and maybe a couple other places, the inability legally to share those tips amongst all hourly workers.
0: Hmm.
2: Because if you're in New York city and your hourly workers are getting a sub minimum wage, Mm -hmm. uh, in exchange for tips, those tips cannot be shared with cooks and dishwashers and stewards and butchers. Mm-hmm. They can't be shared with anyone who works uh, anywhere other than the dining room. Oh. And we all know that, um, and we recently saw a big study about this, you say, well, what's the problem? Just just pay everybody as well as you can well the, the problem is that menu prices since you and i've been in the industry have only gone one direction up mm-hmm. and that's good if you're a tipped worker especially since tips are based on a percentage of menu price but it's terrible if you're ineligible to receive because right. you're the one that gets squeezed at the end there's no money left to, to give raises right and There's a disproportionate number of of people of color in the tip ineligible uh, back of the house. And there's a disproportionate number of white people, it turns out, in the dining room. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
2: when you you look at our industry and you say, what is your industry doing to address some of the broader um, problems that our society is having, I don't think any restaurateur wakes up and says, "She, uh, what I really hope to do is perpetuate racism and sexism." I, I think, I think the underlying system that the public demands,
0: mm-hmm. public
2: demands the ability to tip. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact,
0: mm-hmm.
2: in the uh, very, very small handful of restaurants that we've been trying to operate, even without being able to have guests in our dining rooms, uh, you know, during COVID. Mm-hmm. So takeout and delivery and all that kind of stuff. The um, the stories I've heard about guests genu- genuinely being upset at us that we will not permit them to leave a tip to say thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, for workers who are showing up. Yeah. Despite the, the dangers of showing up um, during COVID. And so I've shifted my feelings saying, I don't... I don't have a problem with tipping, believe it or not. I can't believe those words coming out of my mouth. I mm-hmm. have a big problem that when you tip, it only goes to people on one part of the restaurant and doesn't go to more of the people who need it. And mm-hmm. so every, every month we've been open, we've just seen a widening gap between what people can earn and, and which people get to earn it. Mm-hmm. And so here, so yeah you know, no I'm gonna I get do that. everything I can to advocate but
1: what do you what what are your thoughts though on like the historical significance of tipping you know the the association with that you know I know you've been in conversation with Saru Joe Murin a couple times as well
2: about that um, how it, well, Saru and I have jointly written a uh, an op-ed piece mm-hmm which I think is going to be in Time Time Magazine any minute. Oh, Um, it
1: hasn't come out yet?
2: I don't think so. Oh, great. Um,
1: Great. So tell me
2: more, if you can. Yeah. So we're basically, look, Saru has been advocating, you know, for as long as I've known her for what she calls one fair wage. I'm sure you know about it. Yep. And um she and I actually met about six years ago when we were contemplating um, moving to our model called hospitality included,
0: mm-hmm.
2: where we would obviously be paying way more than one fair wage everybody there, there would be no such thing as a um, you know a sub-minimum wage or what our industry calls the tip credit
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, And so we we kind of... Uh, obviously, came from two very, very different sides of the industry. She's a worker advocate. Um, I'm a, I'm the kind of restaurateur that worker advocates, they, they go, or excuse me. I should say, I'm on the part of, I'm on the other aisle. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, for those people who think that operators and, and workers are are on two separate agendas, I, I think we need each other. And I, I always look for ways. To, to make it work for all, so she and I have have really um, spoken quite often over the last five years, and we decided jointly to write this op-ed to show that this is not really two aisles; it's a unified approach, which is that we have no industry if um, if we if if we can't provide a sustainable living. For the very people we are asking to take care of our guests.
1: That's absolutely
2: right. Yeah. So, um, I think we've we've each learned a lot from each other.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And what we're doing right now, Tanya, as a midstep, um, because Hospitality Included did uh, manage to narrow some of the ever widening gap between front of house and back of house Mm -hmm, pay. mm -hmm. So what we're going to do is while we continuously and actively advocate for the kind of policy change that we need to have one fair wage with with shareable tips, Mm -hmm. um, we are going to move to tipping. And since we cannot legally share those tips with our kitchen, we will be in the interim, paying a revenue share from the restaurant to the kitchen workers so that Mm -hmm. when revenue goes Mm up, Mm -hmm. they will not be standing still while tip workers' compensation does go up.
1: That's great. That's very fair. Yeah, having worked... It's a good
2: good mid-step, but it's not the ultimate place.
1: Right. Yeah, having worked, I worked both front and back of the house, and I know, you know... How significantly different the compensation can be, and that the back of the house is just can be really grueling work and require more specific training, more um, risk, you know, of injury. Um, And it's yeah, I just feel that it's time for everyone, even outside the industry, to have an understanding of you know, what it takes to run our businesses. And as you said, the small margins that
2: we have to work with. And, and Tanya, that was my first thought when you said, why you asked me, why do I think our industry has been slow to respond? And, and I think I, I really, I continue to believe in the best angels, um, and I continue to believe that our industry would like to do things a lot better,
0: mm-hmm. but
2: I, I think much of this is rooted in, um, really the the, a compensation model that just perpetuates rather than addresses the problems. Um, mm-hmm. hmm And so we're going to have to come up with a way for, in this country, where tipping is such a cultural norm. Mm-hmm. Okay, if that's the case, then how do we use tipping to address these issues, as opposed to what I've been trying to do with every ounce of energy I have uh, for the last five years, which is to to say, well, tipping is obviously the problem, so let's just get rid of tipping.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And apparently, that was not that was not the you know the the final evolution of where this thing could go.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I find that people, especially we're doing takeout right now, I just have the one uh, restaurant open, um, and people really want to be generous, you know, like you said, they're really appreciating that we have employees that are, you know, kind of, they're frontline, they're putting themselves out there to take care of others. Um, So I I understand that. I can't wait to read the op-ed. I definitely understand that perspective. But I think our whole industry—we've just got to—I don't know—create some kind of think tank about how can we, how can we redo this because it's um, it's not sustainable in its current form for sure.
2: I, I'm with you, hundred percent. Great. Well, let's let's talk about that.
1: Um, Tanya, so...
2: there's there's a uh, there's a restaurant not far from you, I think. Uh huh whose name is Jessie Cool? Do you know her by any oh chance? Oh my
1: gosh, she's amazing. Yeah, she's just gonna go
2: to the no, no tipping model, right? Well, she's got a model which I really admire, which is a little, it's actually different. It's, oh. She, called, she calls it heart of the house. Mm-hmm. And she's paying one fair wage to everybody. Mm-hmm. And there is a line on the guest, as I understand it, because I've, I've not been there, but as I understand it, there's a line on the guest check that, uh, rather than saying tip, uh, it says gratitude.
1: Oh, and it And nice.
2: it, it gives the guests an opportunity to say thank you to all of the people who made that experience happen.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so that gratitude is shared shift by shift
0: mm-hmm.
2: with every hourly worker who worked that shift. Yeah. And she says it does an amazing job of of really encouraging more of a cohesive team spirit.
0: hmm
2: That her guests like it because she explains it and they understand it. We cannot do that, sadly, in New York yet.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna. I, thank you for reminding me. I'm gonna reach out to her because I did read that somewhere, and I've attended um, some of the uh, some conferences and seminars with Jesse, and she's a really progressive thinker and just really smart and a solid restaurateur for sure. And I don't think she's known a lot outside the Bay Area market, uh, but she's been you know she's been doing it for a while.
2: She has. Yeah. That's right.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just, um, this is, I mean, for me, talking to other colleagues in the business and seeing what everyone else and hearing what everyone else is doing is uh, really helpful and really important because we all want to do the right thing and we all want, you know, ultimately our employees to, you know, be happy and healthy and to live comfortably and not paycheck to paycheck. Um, But since I've been in this business, Thirty some years, like that's been the the norm. And um, you know, personally, I'm I'm tired of it. It's exhausting. You know, you have um, yeah.
2: It, it makes your job harder. Right. It makes my job harder. Right. It makes it feel less worthwhile. Exactly. And exactly. I'll also say a whole lot less fun. And you want your people to thrive. That's right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's what, you know. That's what's ultimate ultimately is going to bring the joy to the customer as well. Um, so I had a question about, I know, you know, hospitality is what you're known for um, since, you know, your book Setting the Table came out and The Transforming Power of Hospitality in Business. Uh, that's definitely a, um, a reference book <laughs> for most uh, restaurateurs right now and give their staff and managers. What do you think is, because I love hospitality too, people ask me, about cooking. And for me, I'm more about creating the experience and the environment. Um, do you feel like ultimately that hospitality is, is valued by, say, the average American? I know, you know, we live in metropolitan areas where people dine out more frequently at different levels of dining. Um, and it sounds like you and I kind of had parents that uh, raised us, you know, dining regularly and entertaining um and i'm trying to just find a way to convey that to my employees about the hospitality piece of the business like just everything adding up everything providing the experience for the guests not just the food not just the drink um what do you think about in general about you know the general population and and how they're educated about that I know it's kind of a little bit of a vague question, but well, did you yeah, follow, it, if you follow me,
2: <laughs> I will do the best I can. I, okay. I hope my answer bears some similar similarity to the question you were trying to ask. But um, I think I think the human craving to receive and to give hospitality is boundless, mm-hmm. and I think it, I also think it's timeless. And I don't know that it's about educating because I, I don't think anyone has to be educated to crave either getting a hug or giving a hug mm-hmm. as a matter of fact say that one of the very very hardest parts of quarantine um, and lockdowns and social distancing has been that outside of your own pod you can't really give hugs or you can't really get hugs
1: yeah, and there's um, so much power in human touch in in, any, there's, there's, in, in so many ways.
2: And I think yeah. that um, beyond the actual touch, mm-hmm. I think what a hug conveys is the mutual giving and receiving of belonging. And I think that... Mm. I, I just think that people long to belong, and I, and I don't think that that's going to change. Um, I mm-hmm. think that our employees... When we do our best work as employers we create a sense of belonging to something important
0: mm-hmm. to our
2: employees. I think when we do our best job with our guests we do a great job of conveying you belong here. We recognize you, we see you, we're happy to see you.
0: Mm-hmm. We know
2: you've been here before. And when that when that moment happens that's hospitality because
0: mm-hmm.
2: on the receiving end knows you're on their side.
0: Mm-hmm. I think
2: we Um, I think hollow transactions are happening by the millions every second on this earth, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, online transactions Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I, I continue to believe that, you know, the, that people are going to crave and continue to crave eye contact, a smile and a hug, which is they Mm want to know you see them. They mm-hmm. want to know you're happy to you see them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you, I don't know who packed all that great food you cooked for me. <laughs> I
1: hand-packed it myself, actually. I was thinking about that. Well, I got to just say,
2: <laughs> I, gotta, I could feel, I really could feel the joy. Now I know it was you, but I could feel the joy of that person conveying pleasure that I would then have the pleasure of receiving.
1: Oh, uh. Thanks. I'm so excited to that's do that. A hug.
2: That's the hope. That <laughs> is. That, that was. Yeah. And I just think that that that's forever. That we didn't start it. We're not going to end it. Yeah. Um, and going on is probably as long as there's been people. Um. Now, will people? You know, we're just in such a weird period where we've been. Our industry has lost the very greatest resource we have and that is to bring people together Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's us at our best yeah it sure is i remember after after 9-11 i think the restaurants in new york city did more to help bring that city back than any other industry because we provided comforting places of welcome where people could be with people and feel hope yeah
1: absolutely Uh,
2: And that's been taken away from us. How do you get that, you know, through a delivery app? It's just, it's different.
1: Yeah, even before COVID, I really wasn't uh, embracing the delivery apps. It just, I felt like that wasn't the point of why I went into business, you know. I went into business to place a plate of food in front of you and to tell you about it and to... You know, provide the music and the smells, um, but you know it's just this uh, society of convenience. Um, so, in this time when and after nine eleven, where do where do you go to find inspiration and you know motivation to keep moving forward? Because you've you've been in this business for a long time, you've seen a lot of ups and downs, although you've had a lot of great successes. Um, where do you where do you go? Where do you find your um, your strength. Are you spiritual? Do you have mentors?
2: I am actually spiritual. Um, I And my spirituality gets very, very much lit by nature. Mm. Um, I, I feel like I think a lot about this. Um, I'm a Jewish guy, but never had a bar mitzvah. Um, so <laughs> it's, I think you can be spiritual without gaining it through organized religion but I think mm-hmm. in general spirituality is something that might be unique to human beings and it's just this its amazing sense of wonder and humility wonder how did all of that happen? How mm-hmm. did all that the beautiful stuff happen the really hard stuff happen and and look how powerless I am in the face of it all and I think that 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 wonder and humility, is a uniquely human combo and Mm -hmm. um so i definitely i I feel like that's serving it's serving me professionally right now because how did all this happen right and 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 look how powerless i am to do a lot about a lot of it right that doesn't mean that if you if you hear a a tornado coming, you can't be smart enough to get into the cellar. And if you hear about a hurricane coming, or even a rainstorm, you can't put on a you know put on a raincoat. Mm-hmm. I I think in this case, it's just been so hard to find ways to make an impact uh, when the thing you do and the thing that feeds you the most, which is taking care of other people,
0: mm-hmm.
2: has not only been taken away in terms of your guests, but what if t- taking care of employees means doing a better job of unemploying them? Mm-hmm. That's really hard. That's just bizarre. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then to your original question, which is what motivates me to keep on keeping on? It's like, you know, it's, I've always like, like almost everyone in our industry, n- no one got into this business in the first place. Cause it was easy. You obviously, right. you did it. Cause of two things. You think that you have the ability to make people feel good through the through the work you do, mm-hmm. and you like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you, and you obviously like a good challenge. Mm. You don't mind climbing a steep mountain <laughs> in search of trying to find a fresh way of making people happy. And so this mountain is really steep that we're all on in this industry right now.
0: Mm-hmm. And a
2: lot of our hiking gear is not proving to be very effective.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and there's something about that puzzle that actually energizes me, even as it exhausts me. Um, mm-hmm. I also think that the, um, the, the learnings and the awakening that we've had over the past three years between Me Too and Black Lives Matter has mm-hmm. Has provided, I think, really important fodder for enriching the higher purpose of hospitality, which is that if if you uh, if you agree with how I define hospitality, which is something that only exists if the other person believes you're on their side, mm,
0: mm-hmm. and you
2: look at the number of people in our industry who have not believed we're on their side mm, mm-hmm. because some of the systemic problems that, that our industry has has perpetuated.
0: Mhm.
2: Then you say well that alone is reason to re up and to try to to try to figure this out and to and to to lead to mm-hmm. lead our own company. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully set an example.
1: Mhm. I agree. And I agree with you and you know this this period has just been a great time for a lot of people to experience humility who may not have, you know, not, I mean, I just, I've, I've been saying for years to, you know, my employees, a little humility goes a long way. You know, you just, yes, you know, what seems successful, but it might not always be here, you know, and you can't, you know, rest on your laurels. You always have to try to do a little bit better and, you know, put yourself in the other person's shoes. Um, and, I think COVID and the movement has given me a chance to reset, um, to really look at how I perform as a leader, how I can, um, you know, inspire more. But uh, like you, nature just really, um, really inspires me and gets me back on track. Last week for my birthday, you know, it's, it's on a Tuesday, which is never usually a celebration day. And it's during COVID and lockdown, (laughs) so what are you going to do? I ended up at a friend's home in Mendocino County, and I I took a walk on a country road. I went for a swim in a watering hole in the river, and then I walked amongst the redwoods. And it just Mm. was so amazing, (laughs) you know, because it just, you know especially the redwoods, you're just like, oh, I'm, I'm nothing. These trees are like 300 plus years old, you know, 300 feet tall. Um, and it just puts things in perspective for you. Um, and I feel so well, lucky I, that I, had, I could access it. Yeah,
2: you and I are singing from the same hymn book there that <laughs> that's, that's, I've been uh, in one of those red forests. Um, trying to remember where I was, I, I think I was south of Monterey Mm, Um, mm -hmm. it was in big near Big Sur oh I
1: love that area
2: yeah and I mean if that's not wonder and humility inducing I don't know what is that's right that's right
1: yeah that's why I love I usually go to the ocean for my birthday and the ocean was right down the street but um I like to go to Maui because I just feel the ocean also just puts things in perspective for you, <laughs> and I think that's important when you're especially in the kind of the work we do um, all the interactions with people um, just the it's just an arduous art form you know I think when you 're really good in this industry, you are an artist i mean you're an artist you've been able to create so much um, Experience for people and so much joy and that's the other thing I think that's missing because we can't entertain people in our spaces is those memory markers that we provide for people aren't existing like oh I had my birthday at Gramercy Tavern you know we went for graduation dinner at you know Brown Sugar Kitchen or what, wherever right um, those are important so
2: true, so true.
1: And,
2: and I think that's something that I'm really glad you brought that up because I think it's, I think the memories that get created at our places live with that family and those family members forever. Absolutely. Whereas whereas for us, it was one of many things that we may have done that night or that day. And so I think sometimes we underestimate the power of what actually happens in these places that we create. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Mhm. Absolutely. I I've, I've heard over the years, I'm sure you have too, later on when you talk to um a guest, "Oh, we had our first date here and you know, you had no idea. And we so that's why we're having dinner here tonight. It's our anniversary or um you know, we came here when we found out we were expecting and you know, now this is our child." I've, you know, I'm sure you have too. We've raised kids in our restaurants. <laughs> you know.
2: Yeah absolutely
1: do you are any of your children you have how many kids do you have we have four kids wow wow
2: what's and, the um, age our range old, our oldest one is 27 and she opened an ice cream place an ice cream restaurant last fall oh wow and she was so looking forward to the you know the spring and summer season for ice cream hmm. um it's She's pretty entrepreneurial, though. First of all, her product is great. It's called Cafe Pana.
1: Okay. P-A-N-N-A?
2: Yep, which means coffee and cream. Um, nice. I'm and, bit. yeah, her food is really, really good. But she's she's really been remarkable in terms of pivoting to way sooner than we were able to, even in our restaurants, to selling ice cream to go by by the pint and having it delivered. and. Nice. Um, yeah. So that's our oldest. And then we have 23 uh, year old twins. And then we have a 20 oh, wow. year old who's um, supposed to be starting his junior year in college.
1: Wow. How's, how's he doing with that? I mean, just that college experience. Those are the, I, f- I feel the most for the high school and college seniors who, you know, missed out on some of their experience this year.
2: Yeah, I think I feel badly for them. And I, you know, one of our kids was supposed to graduate from college uh, back in May, which she did, but it was virtual. She wasn't able to, to walk with her class, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But um, look, I think everyone's trying to make the best of it. The the son of ours who's waiting to hear whether his college will start or not. hmm baked a beautiful loaf of sourdough bread today. So like so many others <laughs> in the country, right, he's learned baking. how to do that. Yep. Yesterday he made some of the best biscuits I think I've ever had in my life. Um, <laughs> but every, everybody's Uh-oh. trying to make them.
1: I got some competition. Yeah, I'll,
2: <laughs> I'll tell you what, I think you would like them. They were good. They were cheddar jalapeno.
1: I'm, oh, I'm sure I would. Well, that's good. So you, speaking of college, you went to college in Hartford, I don't know if I ever told you I was born in Hartford. I may have heard. No. Yeah. Oh my, <laughs> my dad was at Western New England College in Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay. I don't know if you heard of that. Yeah. So you went from St. Louis to Hartford to New York City. Those are all very different places. Um, places. What did you eat? Yeah, it was a, you... Uh, a several month stop in Chicago or uh, New York? Oh, oh, okay. Another great city. What did you eat during college? Were you I mean, I know your 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 family you spent time in France, so you probably had a more sophisticated palate than your classmates, but what did you find hard for it to eat?
2: Well, that didn't stop me from a Sunday night tradition at Burger King with <laughs> one of my friends, but really? um, There wasn't, there really wasn't a whole lot doing in Hartford. I remember spending some time on Franklin Avenue getting Italian food and Mm -hmm. um, grinders, which I never had heard of. Grinders. (laughs) Um, There was something about the Hartford style of pizza that I liked, which is, I think it's more Greek than it is Italian. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there were, every now and then a restaurant would pop up that, that I found pretty interesting. There was a place called Thirty Six Lewis Street that I used to like to go to. Hmm. Um But you know, the the other cool thing about my college years, back then when my dad was alive, he had a he was in the travel business
1: mm-hmm.
2: and he had an arrangement with an airline which most people have never even heard of. It's called Lanica.
1: Oh yeah, never heard of
2: that. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, the Nicaraguan airline. Oh, wow. Of all places. Who would have he was, thought? Yeah. Who would have thought? He was <laughs> signing tours to Nicaragua way back then. Wow. And the reason I'm telling you the story is that until I was 21, I had the opportunity to fly by, by virtue of being his son. Wow. To fly anywhere that Lanica, excuse me anywhere that Pan Am I have no idea what their association was with Pan Am
1: oh that was a big one
2: I could fly anywhere on Pan Am for $44 round trip wow and and so before I was 21 so that was three of my college years Mm -hmm. I think I must have gone to Italy five times for $44 round trip
1: oh my goodness wow
2: and so it almost didn't matter how how great the Italian food was in Hartford because I could (laughs) go get the you're not that much more than a taxi in Hartford amazing
1: amazing what a gift I mean I just think what? back to traveling you know that's another very missing element in uh, you know our lives right now because I think I mean I find it to be so enlightening and inspiring um, for not only in the industry but just as knowing people and understanding people Getting out of your comfort zone. Would not agree more. Yeah, and I just
2: you know that's I love traveling. It's um, it's a great time to reflect,
0: mm-hmm.
2: learn. Um, I I think there's actually a spirituality to travel and discovering how other people live their lives. And
1: I, I agree. I agree. So yeah. Um, and even within this country, you know, the different regional differences, um, I learned more when I go to, you know, even cities I'm still discovering in, uh, the United States. We're, we're fortunate. Uh, hopefully we can get back to that sooner than later. So I was going to ask you if there's something that you eat that you might not want folks in the industry to know you eat, but that Burger King story might be, might be the one. <laughs> um, Alice Waters said potato chips, which I didn't think was too naughty, but uh, organic ones, of
2: course, she said. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Burger King uh, once uttered the word organic back in the 1970s. (laughs) No, no, that was our that was my Sunday night uh, date with one of my fraternity brothers was trip to Burger King. And um, did you go to Friendly's? Because
1: that was big in that area, right? That was really
2: big near it, Springfield.
1: I want to say we might it have started I, in Connecticut or Massachusetts. I think they actually
2: started in Springfield or, or right around there. Okay. Uh, and I don't recall that we had any in, in Hartford, but, but um, yeah, no, as far as my, the food that I, I don't really care if anyone knows that I, <laughs> I like. In fact, I've had both in the last week: <clears throat> sausage and mushroom pizza, mm. which I'll eat. I'll eat from almost anywhere just to try it. <laughs> and fried chicken. So ah, those are my okay two. good to know. In fact, I had fried chicken for lunch today, yesterday. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow, I, I keep saying fried chicken is not going out of style. I'm sorry, but it just isn't. We have been quite busy, and that's our biggest seller always. Even without the waffles. I can't do the waffles right now because they don't really travel well to go, which is why when I packed up that to-go uh, lunch for you or travel meal, I think I put a disclaimer on there. Please don't judge the waffles because once you put them in
2: the uh, the packaging, they, they start to wilt. Well, it's like french fries. Right. Know, I think, but in- interestingly, I would say that fried chicken is one of the last remaining food food groups that people they just don't they don't really want to cook it at home you're right and you're absolutely right and therefore if you make a great fried chicken in a restaurant
0: mm-hmm. it's
2: a pretty good pretty good bet you'll have a good business from it yeah and the other thing and i i think the most underrated reason that hamburger places work is the french fries because very few people make french fries at home either
1: that's true you're absolutely right you're absolutely right um so but the burger king excursions were they at all did they at all inspire the shake shack uh you know development (laughs) not (laughs) not in the least least.
2: (laughs) well on the other hand i think growing up in st louis where we had. Lots and lots of burger places, and most of them smashed their burgers. That was just the style. Mm. St. Louis mm-hmm. had a, a fantastic. We had a, a bunch of good places to get shakes as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, one place specifically uh, that that made great makes great frozen custard. So yummy. I would say growing up in St. Louis was much. Well, it was where I got almost all my inspiration and I got zero of it from Burger King.
1: <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Well, I, your burgers is delicious. Um, and as I told you, when I was in Hong Kong last year, we were a little inundated with the local cuisine and took a reprieve over to Shake Shack a cup for a couple lunches. And it was excellent.
2: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Yeah. So, so what do you, I mean, you know, I've, I've, Made an effort to expand my brand, um, you know, to have more than one unit because because of our small margins. As you know, a lot of times in this industry, you have to um, um, expand in order to be profitable or or to continue to create opportunities for employees. And you've done kind of both uh, models, like you've expanded in. When you know you were running Shake Shack, so multiple units of the same concept, versus uh, the Union Square Hospitality Group, where you have all these different concepts uh, with you know different types of cuisine, is there? Do you think one works better than the other, or do you like? Are there different challenges um, for those two different models, or do you prefer one or the other?
2: Well, I think that the opportunities for um, for a sustainable margin are far greater in a um, fast casual or fine casual or quick serve however you want to call it mm-hmm. than they are in a full service setting yeah. um, that's not reason enough to, to do that exclusively we continue to um, or I, I, I continue to love the full service uh, side of the business mm-hmm. but i just think that um both from a scalable san- standpoint and a margin standpoint there are absolutely advantages to a business that you can operate without having a chef and three sous chefs and a pastry chef and a sommelier and a reservationist and a maitre d mm-hmm. bartender and waiters and waitresses just i mean uh Never mind things like um, tablecloths and flowers.
1: Right, all those details just, that add it, up. Mm-hmm. Just
2: think about all the expense lines that just don't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in those other worlds, and so if you can, if you can find a way to deliver approximately the same amount of quality in terms of what you put in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and save the, the guest a lot of money and a lot of time relative to going to a full-service restaurant, they'll often take the trade-off of saying, you know, I got just as much flavor, but I saved money and time, and the only thing I had to, to pay for all that savings of money and time was... Um, you know, I'm I'm probably not going to have the food brought to me at a table. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I think I think there's something to be said for both. I but I also I would also say uh, that having the uh, the qualitative chops that come from having started a full service restaurant is a really good idea because. Mm-hmm. It just means that the taste level of what you're serving stands a better chance of legitimately making a mark on on that marketplace.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So I have not,
1: not.
2: Yeah. of the time, but you know, I think, um, for example, Chipotle, which I, I think deserves credit for being really the first breakout national chain, whose founder came from a culinary background. Um,
0: Hmm.
2: You know, Hmm. Steve Ells had not just gone to the Culinary Institute, but he also worked at uh, stars in San
0: Francisco, Mm -hmm. Mm Jeremiah. And
2: he he knew, and he knows really, really good ingredients and, and culinary technique. And there's a reason I think that that brand really stood out, because if you can start with that kind of background and then learn the systems necessary for scaling,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which are not, it's not easy to learn that. As a matter of fact, um, it's a different mindset. I think, you know, so many people in the full service restaurant industry are far better at improvising solutions than they are at creating systems.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I couldn't agree more.
2: I'm, I'm not good you can, at it. <laughs> Yeah, if you came, on the other hand, if you came from a background where you're expert at systems, Mm -hmm. it might be harder to retrofit good taste. That's right.
1: Yeah. Which is why, yeah, sometimes when you go to certain venues or certain operations, you're like, wow, (laughs) this is, it doesn't have that, you know, (laughs) that umami or that taste that I want. Well, because they don't come from that place. That's, that's true. Um... I had another something I was going to ask you about that when you were talking about, mm, I lost my train of thought, but, um, so what do you, let's just end on. Oh, I know you had mentioned that you didn't think, uh, people needed to be educated, but what do you think about like starting in school and not just, you know, Alice waters obviously is doing the, um, the edible schoolyard and teaching kids where their food comes from, But, you know, starting with, you know, hospitality and personally, I think cafeterias are not really conducive to, um, I don't know, just like people really coming together. (laughs) You know, I just, I find them to be so divisive. I don't know, what are your thoughts on, on, you know, maybe teaching kids more about dining when they're in grade school and and junior high as opposed to just going to the cafeteria or going to grab you know a fast food lunch
2: wouldn't that be amazing <laughs> um, mm-hmm. i i i have a tough time i mean that would be amazing um, it's tough for me to imagine that that's going to make it into too many curriculums but um, I remember our oldest daughter, the one who I, I told you mm-hmm. has an ice cream restaurant now, which is what she did with her English literature degree. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but I have a
1: degree was, in Russian literature, so,
2: you know. It's, that's awesome. It is because what it is. what, what you did. <laughs> and I'm, yeah. I'm political science, so go figure. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I, I, I do remember, though, that when she was in grade school, uh, and I'm going to guess this was, second or third grade, I forget what it was. She, one of her classes was called Life Skills. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it was everything from learning to tie a tie, uh, which would be laughable today. Right. um, To uh, learning manners in a restaurant.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Just you were saying. In in fact, we would um, host her class at 11 Madison Park, which we owned back then. Mm
0: Mm-hmm
2: and um go through a whole meal with with, with the students. Mm. Um but I it's it's tough for me to imagine that that would make anyone's curriculum today, but it would be great, be great if it did.
1: Yeah, I mean I just, you know, I've done some work as I know you have with Share Our Strength and No Kid Hungry and you know, I remember going to um uh Place, a facility, I guess it it was where there were some families in need and we were teaching them how to cook for themselves, but that's where you could add that. You know, you can't assume that no matter where someone comes from that they're not going to have the opportunity to dine. You know, I I think, um, you know, just I've seen too many times where people's, their intelligence and their desire to know things get underestimated and it would just be great to just... I don't know, maybe it's a show. Maybe The Life Skills is, um, you know, a little um, a show. <laughs> I don't know. And you make it like a cartoon so the kids, you know, want to watch it. I don't know. I'm just dreaming right now.
2: <laughs> let's keep dreaming, Tanya.
1: Yes, and let's keep doing what we're doing. And you please keep doing what you're doing. Um, I'm just so... I've been admiring you for years. So we were talking about the Memory Bank. And I remember when I moved to New York City in 88, and my dad came and took me out to dinner, I think, in 89 or so. He um, was recruiting uh, for Eastman Kodak at one of the universities there. And I remember having a tuna steak served... Rare to medium rare for the first time, and I'll never forget mm. it. I'll never forget it. <laughs> so thank you grilled for that. Mar-
2: grilled marinated filet mignon tuna, which
1: that was a signature dish, right, at Union Square the Cafe for a lot of years. Yep. <laughs> well, uh, I had
2: it. I wish, I wish I knew you back then.
1: I wish I knew you, and but I'm I'm really happy to know you now, and just want to thank you again for taking the time to speak to me, and um, to just yeah to really be able to talk about some uh, some of the serious issues and also discover some of our common denominators in our industry. Hartford.
2: Yeah, <laughs> go hard for it. Congratulations on your your podcast. I'm Thank really you. Uh, grateful to be part of it.
1: Thank you so much. And um, I right. look forward to seeing you Thank soon. You. I look forward to hosting you here at the restaurant when we can do that again.
2: I cannot wait. <laughs> All right, bye-bye. Okay, take care. Bye.
1: Tanya's Table is a Mudhouse Media production. Original music by Coffee Brown. Music is produced by Coffee Brown and Julie Wolf. Tanya's Table podcast is produced by brand AOK.
0: Like what you're hearing? Download and subscribe to all of our shows at mudhousemedia.com.